So without any further ado, I bring you Justin D. Good morning, my name is Justin and I'm an alcoholic. Looking out here is a little bit scary, and uh, I don't think I'm so scared about talking to a group of doctors as much as I'm scared that some of you may remain till the end of what I have to say. <laughs> I happen to be a Catholic priest, and that indicates to me, if not to you, that God has a sense of humor. You may have awakened and found yourself in some strange situations and strange things to cope with in your life, but all of a sudden I came to uh, realize what my problems are and had to cope with being a priest. I also happen to be a monk. My group calls me, you know, the drunk monk. I'm one of those alcoholics that does not recognize clearly or historically in my life the invisible line. Now, it may be clear to you if you look at your history or your story as you uh, come to terms with your alcoholism, there was a definite point where you went over the line into alcoholic drinking. I cannot identify that with me because I was like go from the start. Uh, maybe that's, maybe that's my personality, but I'm, I'm the kind of a person that when I got into the, got into drinking, there was no question of like crossing the line. It was always excessive and out of control because of what alcohol was going to do in me. The effect it was going to have. And this disease will do its thing. Now, I don't know. I, I made myself promise as I was walking up the stairs not to use any jargon. We hear that I come from a, an ethnic and uh, religiously observant and urban family background. My sponsor gave me a definition of the word dysfunctional. And he said, and I like his definition. He said, dysfunctional means it's your fault. <laughs> I have the same sponsor as when I came in the program in November of 1973, and by the grace of God and the fellowship and the sharing and the acceptance of that grace, which is participation in this program, I haven't found it necessary to pick up a drink since then. And it's amazing what happens as uh, a long-term relationship with a sponsor unfolds. My sponsor is an iron worker. Uh, they're good for priests. Uh, the best thing for, uh, for me. So I grew up in this in this family in the city and got away from them and, and then came and lived in the country. I joined a monastery when I was 19 years old. That's not done anymore, but at that time it was done. And what I found there, uh, it may have been for some kind of religious reasons, but what I found in the monastery was that monks drink. Now... It's a funny thing, whether, you know, by our occupation or by how we, we tune in in our lives, we think that we're in the only group that drink. Monks drink. Now, it's, they invented a lot of this stuff. 
if if you ever travel to Bavaria and you see that little thing holding the beer mugs on the on the coat of arms of the of, the, uh, Bavaria, of Munich, that's not a little girl. That's a monk with his hat up, holding two steins of beers. They didn't invent beer; they developed it and marketed it and everything else. First monastery in this country in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, Rolling Rock beer. Monks were doing what they did in Europe. They brewed, the bishops in this country went crazy. They said, you can't do that. Well, that's what monks do. They invented champagne and a host of other things that occur in monasteries throughout Europe for digestion and for changing, uh, for hallucinations or whatever else you use it for. We have all kinds of stuff that's been developed by monks. Now, the monastery I joined, uh, Benedictine Traditions, Benedictine Monastery, follows an ancient rule of life, and the rule of St. Benedict says, written in the 6th century, 6th century, wine is not a drink for monks. So that's why I drank scotch. <laughs> or beer, or, or whatever I could get my hands on. But then he goes on, he goes on and says that, but since the monks of our day cannot be convinced of this, let it be measured. Let the monks have a hemina of wine at their meals. Now you can always find the, uh, the drunks in the monastery because for me it was never, we don't know what a hemina is, but it wasn't a hemina. <laughs> it was a hemina. And I had a divine right to this as it said in the rule of Benedict. So, Monks had an apple orchard here in New Jersey. We had 300 apple trees, and what we would do is we would pick the apples and squash them, and put them in a press, put them in an oak barrel, turn it on its side, put a plug in it, a plastic tube, and it would begin to bubble. After six weeks or eight weeks, somebody would come by, check it out, and decide whether it needed raisins or brown sugar, and they called that racking it over, and then they would put it out on the tables. And it would come out on the tables on Sunday night, Tuesday night, and Thursday night, and my life became Sunday night, Tuesday night, and Thursday night because I would get my hands on this hard cider, which was an apple wine, that looked and smelled and tasted like gasoline. But here again, I never drank anything, anything for its bouquet. I never drank anything for its clarity. I drank for effect. This stuff, this stuff used to come out in a clear, it came out and it looked cloudy yellow. Mm. And, uh, <laughs> after a little bit of sugar in it or putting some honey in it, I would get it down, but always the same result would happen. I would be looking for more. What's the definition of an alcoholic? For the longest time, my definition of an alcoholic was somebody worse than me. So I could always look around and say, well, they got a problem, or this guy's got a problem, but there's nothing wrong with me, and I would drink this up. I developed some interesting habits in the monastery. Uh, we wear the, the monk suit in the, in the monastery, the habit. It's black, it has a hood, and it has an endless place to hide bottles and cans. <laughs> I perfected the holier-than-thou look with beer cans and bottles underneath the habit. You could put beer cans in the hood and nobody knew what you were doing. I would sneak into the other monks' rooms at different times. Now, 
Somebody might have a bottle in their room, and this still occurs. Somebody could have a bottle in their room, it might be on their dresser or in their closet, and it could be there for six months. I don't understand that now, let alone then. So I would, I would get all suited up in the monk suit, and I would find out who was out, sneak into their room, and I would either drink their booze or steal it from their own room. They began to say that they had to hide their own booze in their own room from me. Along the way, the inevitable happened. Internally, I was frantic and desperate, and the disease was beginning to take its effect. Uh, spiritually, from the minute I, I began to uh, abuse alcohol and to drink for effect in the monastery, my spiritual and religious life went out the window. That was gone. It died. Uh, and then it is replaced with a life of scheming and excuse-making, which just kills the life of the spirit. There were psychological uh, examples of my illness that would, would come up, but when I was actively drinking, I was never interested in looking at any warning signs. And then there were all kinds of physical signs of the uh, development of alcoholism, but I was never interested in, in taking the message from any of that. Spiritually, I died very early. And it's a spiritual death, it's a spiritual collapse that happens with, with my experience of alcoholism. Very early on, whatever values that had me interested in coming to the monastery were gone. So now I'm living a lie, I'm there, and I'm not knowing what I'm doing there. I'm making decisions in my life based upon the fact that, gee, I joined a group that drinks. I could have joined one of those groups that doesn't drink. And this is the base, it was the basis of my joining and staying in the monastery. I was sent to uh, graduate school. I drank my way through uh, final years of high school, through college, and then off to graduate school in Indiana. I got out in Indiana. I was going to live in a big monastery. They had a hundred monks, big dining room. And uh, every night they would come around and pour glasses of homemade wine at the end of the table. So we had to get our glass, six of us had to get our glass lined up at the end of the table, and they would come around and pour from the big stainless steel pitcher these glasses of their homemade wine. Indiana is not a wine-growing region. I never drank for bouquet, clarity, or anything else, and this wine is going in me, and I'm never able to say no. Never able to say no. It was a controlled drinking situation, but it wasn't my control. It was their control, and it always tastes like more. Now, there are endless ways that alcoholics will find uh, to get their hands on booze. So, all of a sudden, I base uh, my friendship and my life on whether the fact, uh, whether you have the fact, whether students have booze in their room or money, and I'm off to the races. So, I'm drinking out of control. I'm going, that's why, you know, when we come, when I said I came to and found out that I was a priest, and had to deal with that because of God's sense of humor, I drank my way through, through seminary. Uh, the things that I guess I'm supposed to know, uh, they're gone somewhere in an alcoholic haze. And uh, that's what I find so amusing about coming to terms with this disease in sobriety. Now, there is a spiritual, physical, and, and, and uh, mental aspect of this disease that we talk about so much. And physically, it's obvious. Uh, psychologically, it's a little more subtle, and yet, but no, no less painful. 
uh, the psychological manifestations of this disease. I used to scare myself waking up in the morning and hating myself and having the shakes and jangles, seeing things that aren't there, hearing things that aren't there, and uh, and bouncing around the room, coming off a drunk. And I would always tell myself, whatever that was, it went away. It's over. What I have to tell you that the the in my experience, the most painful part of the disease was the spiritual aspect of alcoholism. I'm convinced that physically I would drink myself to death if I was left to my own devices. If I were uh, left up to me, I could drink myself to death and rationalize and, and deny my way to the grave. Psychologically, I could drink myself into a mental institution or put myself in some kind of a bind uh, psychologically that uh, I could rationalize that away and and uh, spiritually, I was doing the same thing, but that was the most painful part of the disease because it touched on the, uh, the area where life has its purpose and its meaning and its direction. And this is where uh, it really began to hurt. I knew that what I was doing was living a lie and didn't know what to do about it. Uh, I knew I had been beaten along the way, but I didn't know what it was that was winning I thought I was crazy. I thought I had something. I thought I needed a rest to go off to one of those farms or places where people get straightened out. But I didn't know what the problem was. All the while, internally, I was spiritually dead. It was that part, the part that, the part of my life that gives it its direction, meaning, and purpose that was suffering. And I have to say that there's no pain like that pain. Uh, physical pain. You know, so, sometimes we think that oh, we have a uh, a low threshold for pain. I think alcoholics have a pretty high threshold of pain. Look what we put ourselves through. And uh, it's the same thing psychologically. But for spiritual pain, for the pain that's in the soul, for that ache or that yearning or that craving, I was going out of my mind. I didn't know what to do. And booze was not the answer to that. You know, there was a definition I heard a couple of days ago that uh, therapy is supposed to make you feel good. Uh, Religion is supposed to make you do good. And spirituality deals with being good. And that's where my pain was in, in coming to terms with with being, being anything. Didn't know what to do. Uh, I used to drink to make that go away, and it does. Uh, my sponsor says, God for you is whatever you spend most of your time thinking about. Well, when I was drinking, God for me was booze. And so that's idolatry in religious terms. Uh, maybe in psychological terms, it's addictive illness or uh, neurosis or something. But in, in, in religious terms, it's idolatry. God was alcohol for me because that's what made me function, uh, feel better, do things. And I was basing my life on that. I took the religious cure. If you, if you think that your sobriety means that you have to live like a priest or a monk or a nun or something, I'm here to tell you to try something else. I took the religious cure. It didn't work. Bishop ordained me and uh, asking me questions like, uh, are you all right? Are you going <laughs> to... I thought I looked great. I thought I was at my best. I was drunk the night before, but I was careful not to drink too much so I'd make it. And, uh, you know, I was a little bit insulted by him, but I got through it. I always had a problem with authorities. I think that's maybe, uh, well, I guess alcohol gets you in difficult straits with authorities. At the monastery, 
there were, I, I always had difficulties with the leadership or with anybody in, uh, in authority. And you couldn't tell me anything. There again is a quote from my sponsor. You can always tell a drunk, but you can't tell him much. And <laughs> our monastery grows Christmas trees. That's how we make a living. We have thousands of Christmas trees. It's not such a bad thing. You know, there are monasteries that support themselves by making fruitcakes. There are monasteries that make jelly. And there are monasteries that make candy. And so you have fruitcake monks. And you have jelly monks. And you have candy monks. I'm happy to be the Christmas tree monk. I mean, it's a little more masculine. We grow trees. We grow thousands of trees. And... And we sell them at, at Christmas time. Well, it's cold out there selling Christmas trees. <laughs> and you always find a friend who thinks that a case of beer is going to make it go better. And we start drinking Johnny Walker Red at 9 o'clock in the morning. And it's Christmas time. We're drinking Johnny Walker Red. We're drinking beer. We're giving away Christmas trees. Wishing everybody <laughs> Merry Christmas. You know, then it's time to cut down the Christmas tree for the monastery. Then the lights go out. These things begin happening. I go into blackouts. I don't know what's going on. But the time comes to uh, cut down the monastery Christmas tree. So I get one of our vehicles. We have all these machines. I don't know. It's something like this place. I'm sure they have cars around here that they wouldn't let on the highway that belong to the institution. And uh, So I get in one of these things that has farmer license plates on it. And uh, I come out of a blackout. There's a state trooper that's got me over on the side of the road. And I don't know if you've run in, if you're not from New Jersey, I hope you don't have to run into one of these state troopers. They're scary characters with straps and bullets and guns and things. And this guy's yelling in my face. He wants me to explain to him how he's supposed to know whether this thing I'm driving is going or coming down the road. Now, I'm drunk. You can always tell a drunk. You can't tell him much. When I'm drunk, I talk through my teeth so you can't smell the booze. So I'm looking at this, he's yelling at me, he's right here, and he's yelling at me, and I'm telling him, and I'm explaining to him the situation. You see, the thing I was driving had an extra headlight on it, and it was in the back, and, and all he saw as he was following me was this light. So I get out all my papers and documents and insurance, and he's looking over all these papers, and he sees I'm from the monastery. Now, now this is back when... And back when was when you covered up. This is the old boy method where, uh, you know, geez, he's from the monastery. Oh, what do we do with a drunk monk? <laughs> he sends me home. This is what, you know, nothing done. Well, nothing happened. Another time, uh, one of the monks is dying. Someone wants to see him up in the hospital, in Newton Hospital. So we go up in the hospital. This is back in the days when they had oxygen tents. And this guy's in an oxygen tent, and he's all covered up, and he's breathing heavily. And, and see, when I have an ounce of booze in me, there's absolutely no room for anybody else except your money or your booze. There's no people there. There's no friends. There's nothing there. There's money and there's booze, because money is the means to booze. And we're up in the hospital, and we're looking at this guy, and he's in the oxygen tent, and I'm saying, well, this guy's as good as dead. Let's get out of here. Get something to drink. Now, I had been drinking the hard cider that night, and I was in and out of a blackout. I guess that was a brownout. And there I am, looking at this guy who's dying. He's an old man, and he's lived a wonderful life. And this, this other person who asked me to come up there with him, who didn't drive, was just wanting to bid his farewell to him. 
And the only thing in my mind was, let's get something to drink. So we leave Newton Hospital, and I'm driving about 30 miles an hour. Now, if you go up there, if you're familiar with that, or if you're uh, driving by, the old entrance has two brick uh, entranceways that say Newton Memorial Hospital on them. They have lights on them. Well, on the way out, I hit the one on the right. I didn't see it. I hit it about 30 miles an hour, so the back seat of the car hits me in the head. We spin around, and all of a sudden, there we are, out in the road, blocking traffic. The guy who's with me, that his door is up against some bushes. So we're dressed up in the monk suits. He gets out, and the door slams on the back of his monk suit. He can't breathe. <laughs> so I was really, I thought this guy was hurt. But then I was, I, I discovered that I was bleeding. And I didn't know where. I hit the steering wheel. Now, the logical thing would have been to go back to the hospital for repairs. But I'm not going back there. I just hit their wall. <laughs> we know a dentist that lives three houses down the road. So... We put up the hoods in the monk suits. This is before they made that movie with those eyes and those things. And, and we're holding each other up and we're walking down the highway. We ring this dentist's doorbell. Well, thank God he knew what we were and he lets us in. He takes me downstairs and he's beginning, he's working on my face. I cut my face open. And the next thing, of course, of course, the police are out there because there's this car blocking traffic and they don't know where the occupants are. They find us, and sure enough, they want to see us in the police station. So, like any like any alcoholic, I don't have my driver's license with me. Who knows where that is? Somebody has to go and find the driver's license, and I'm sitting then in the police station. But just before I leave the dentist's office, he says, You look pretty shaken up. Would you like a shot of Benedictine? That's the stuff the monks made, I said to myself. And... Uh, so I take this, but I, I did it for the purpose of the fact that, you know, if the cops smell booze, I blame the dentist. He gave me a shot just before I left. So then I'm in the police station. I'm sitting there in a bloody monk suit with a patch on my chin. And they're wondering, what do you do with a drunk monk? They're talking about fishing. They're trying to make, you know, they're trying to talk. Finally, my license comes. They check it out. No record. No report, nothing, you send them home. So this was before I was legally old enough to drink in the state of New Jersey. I'm learning that you drink and you get away with it. You kind of use whatever you can, your friendships, your position, or anything, and you get away with it. I was beginning to learn that fine art of alcoholism called scheming. That's why at so many of our meetings we put up a sign, think, 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 three times. It's usually on a, on a sign in front of the podium, and sometimes they put it upside down. I used to be so insulted when I first came to AA. Why do they have that sign up there? What do they think we are? You know, some of us have gone to graduate school. Some of us have uh, think, think, think. That's because the natural way that I do that is scheme, scheme, scheme. It's a good reminder for me. Anyway, the police didn't know what to do with me. The monks at home didn't know what to do with me. When I got back home after my little episode, they feel sorry for me. He's smashing cars. They come in my room with a bottle of vodka. This is the way we solve problems. So I began to learn and it began to develop that any any time trouble came up, drinking was the answer. That's what I did. That's what I based my life on. That's all I did in my formative years in education. Drank, drank, drank. That's all I did. Didn't learn anything in the seminary. 
the spiritual part of this disease began to eat away at me. I used to argue with the other seminarians that Jesus was an atheist. And I used to use the New Testament as my proof. Now, early on in the blackouts, early on in the blackouts, I would come to, and inevitably there would be somebody walking around where I lived, and they would have on their face what I call the look. And in that look, there is fear, there is anger, there is hatred, there is revulsion. There's a whole list of emotions that occur in the people that surround the alcoholic. And it usually happened to me, coming out of a blackout, sure enough, there was the look. They're looking at me, and I'm looking at them, and they know what's going on, and I don't know what I did, but I know it's bad. All that is contained in the look. Well, there I am in the seminary, arguing with the other ones that Jesus is an atheist, and I'm getting another version of the look. It's like, so what are you doing here? Why are you here? What do you want? Uh, I've come to, to understand that alcoholism will take whatever I regard in my life as precious, valuable, worthwhile, and will destroy that. The great destroyer. Well, in your life, it might be your family. It might be your profession. It might be relatives. It might be children. Whatever it is that's regarded as valuable, worthwhile, important, that's what the disease is going to attack. And that's what began to happen in my life. So, relationship with a higher power, with God, this has always been something I had to approach uh, through the eyes of AA. Uh, because left to my own devices, I just go nuts with all this stuff, and I go uh, crazy. My, my sponsor also, also likes to tell people when I'm standing around, if you want to know what the difference between intelligence and an education is, just look at Justin. Uh, iron workers are good for uh, iron workers are good for priests, and uh, there is difference. Out of control drinking, not knowing what I'm doing, inflicting pain on other people, uh, uh, self-will run riot, an accident looking for a place to happen. Holiday drinking for me was always running down to New York City. I had friends in the city that owned a bar on 41st Street and 10th Avenue. There at the backside of Port Authority was a little place among the fruit stands where I never have to buy a drink. And that was always holiday drinking for me. There were some of the strangest people on God's earth that passed through that place. It looked like that bar in Star Wars where these... Uh, <laughs> never had to buy a drink there, though. That was the place to go. And, uh, but, but see, I hate driving drunk. I hate driving drunk. I would much... I love this notion we have now of designated driver. Why didn't they have that then? I hate driving drunk. I always put one hand over this side, one over that side. I can't tell the real lines. There's things jumping out of the bushes. I always prefer to drive in a blackout. All of a sudden, you're home. Or, or wherever you are, there you are. It's, uh, and for 20 minutes to pay the price of looking underneath the car for bloodstains and broken uh, headlights. and Well, there we are. We're all wherever we are. I hate driving drunk. 
So I knew I could never stop the car. I didn't know if the guy in front of me had his night lights on or his brake lights. And some of us are sicker than others. That's um, got ordained priest. I, I mentioned I took the religious cure. The bishop didn't know what to do. He thought I was a mess, and, and but he ordained me. Um, that night I was insulting the guests. Following week, this is this is towards the end of my drinking when I got ordained, took the religious cure. I. Uh, I was going to have my first Mass in Jersey City in June of 1973. My family spent a fortune. A fortune. All the relatives are there. The only problem was the day before, I was asked to perform a wedding of this young couple. And it seemed like a good idea. I was going to perform this wedding. Fine. Father of the bride decided that there's no bourbon at this reception. Well, that sounded all right. We used to drink bourbon out in Indiana. And uh, we went and bought a few bottles of this Maker's Mark bourbon. And uh, I'm at this wedding reception. Told everybody I'm going to stay down in the city so I'd be up bright and early for my first mass. All of a sudden, the lights went out. The Roman collar came off. I won the dancing contest in a blackout. <laughs> Next day was the emptiest day of my life. Uh, what happened, there was an invisible line. It wasn't passing from alcoholic drinking into, uh, from non-alcoholic to alcoholic drinking. It was passing the barrier of shame. Uh, and the stakes become very, very high when I crossed that barrier. Because now I was out of control and hating myself. Now I became self-destructive. This is where the disease becomes dangerous and life-threatening. Uh, and this is what happened to me. I had walked around that room. There was a, there was a big, uh, ordination reception. I got through the first mass. Someone found me in my monastery. I was drunk on the floor in my room and they brought me down to my first mass. And uh, so I got through it. But all during that ceremony, I hated myself. I wanted to be absolutely cut off from everybody and everything. The scream of shame of this disease was, was rising up within me and it said, leave me alone. And I wanted to be left alone. I wanted to be away from people. I wanted to handle this myself. I hated myself at that point. All the relatives are there. I walked around with this hollow smile and got through it. All I wanted to be was out of there. Now, after that day, the drinking took on a whole different uh, 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 perspective. Now I became a binge drinker. And there would be days in which I would be unaccountable for my behavior. There were accidents. I remember trying to fill out an accident report. I hit some nun's car on our property, and I'm trying to blame her. I didn't even know what car I had or what I hit. And endless uh, episodes and predictable behavior. There he goes. And everybody knows it's going to be trouble. Now the hallucinations and the blackouts and the convulsions and all this stuff is in full swing. And I'm a young priest. And I don't know what to do. I think I have some kind of neurotic illness and need to be put away. My last drunk was on uh, Jack Daniels, Tennessee Sour Mash Whiskey. And Jack Daniels won. He beat me bad. I couldn't finish the bottle. I was in a blackout. I scared the people I was with. They were telling me about it the next day. Somewhere in my pain, and I think this is the first time I prayed in my life, and it probably was my best prayer, because prayer is nothing else than our experience brought to the higher power. 
I screamed from within me. Uh, somewhere I asked God for help. My prayer was a cry or a scream to heaven. Uh, it was a prayer that came out of the guts, and I don't know where any other prayer... We can write prayers or read other people's prayers or have prayers come out of our head, but this was a prayer that arose from my guts, that, that it was a prayer of surrender that I didn't know what had beaten me, I didn't know what had won, but I was beaten, and I didn't know what to do. I was lying on the floor of my room. I was at the point where, you know, I'm looking out the window, and certain times of year you can't tell if it's morning or night, they invented the digital clock for alcoholics. Because if you have a clock with hands, you don't know if it's 7 o'clock in the morning or 7 o'clock in the evening. So they invented one that says 7 p.m. So you know it's night. Uh, I'm trying to figure out if it's night or day. I hate myself. I'm bouncing around the room. And I made this short, absolutely sincere prayer from the gut. And if there's ever going to be any perfection in my life, that was the moment of perfection because that prayer was complete. It was a, a cry to God for help. Now, I'm more amazed today than I was at the time at how fast and direct help was to come. You know, I was ready to manage this and that. And, you know, I had asked for help. I didn't know what to do. I'm walking around in a daze. Well, the people I live with had gotten tired of wondering what you do with a drunk monk. So they decided to do some research. And they found out that back at that time, there were these policies that people were making. It was the beginning of, of constructing policies of what do you do with a drunk anything. So they found out. I was confronted by the superior of the monastery, the abbot, at lunchtime. He tapped me on my shoulder one day and he said, I want to see you in my office after lunch. And I said to myself, good, this guy has recognized my talent. He's recognized my genius. Here goes some nice big appointment. He gets me in his office and he says, I've determined you've got a problem. Do you have a problem with alcohol? Well, the only thing in my mind is that it took a week to get off the last drunk. I was bouncing around and jangling and not knowing what to do. And uh, I had prayed and asked God for help. And all of a sudden, there I am in the boss's office and he says, do you have a problem with alcohol? There was a moment's hesitation. Now, he had done all his research. He had found out what the policy was, how to implement it, what to do. He was all ready for, you know, you can always tell a drunk, you can't tell him much. That was all in his head. He knew what he was going to do. And I said, yes. This poor man was not ready for yes. He was ready for no. <laughs> so now it was like, who's confused now? He's looking at me and I'm looking at him. He doesn't know what to do when the answer's yes. He only knows what to do with the answer's no. There I am, like an alcoholic uh, jangles, and he doesn't... Well, he sent me off to see an old priest, old Father Dave, an old-timer. He had been in the Navy. He gives, I got a set of car keys, and I'm supposed to find this old priest. I go down, find him in his rectory, and he welcomes me, and he begins to tell me his story. Now, I'm sitting there, and I'm saying, listen to this guy. He's telling me he was in 17 battles in the Second World War in the Pacific. And they used to drink torpedo juice. I never had a torpedo. <laughs> Sailors used to drink the ethanol out of the torpedoes, and then they would fire them. They would go 10 feet and stop because they drank up all the... Uh... <laughs> I drank hard cider. You could run a torpedo on the hard cider, I'm sure. Fortunately, this old guy didn't give up on me. He gets me to see a physician. The arrangements were made to see Dr. Dave. 
and uh, there was a very, very compassionate encounter with him. I haven't seen Dr. Dave in 21 years, and he looks much the same. He's still the same compassionate soul. He was very good with me, very good with me. See, they were going to send me off to the farm, and uh, his advice was, go to Alcoholics Anonymous. Go to Alcoholics Anonymous. It was a very, very wonderful encounter. And and for, in my recovery, that was one of the big steps. That he was someone who wasn't yelling at me, wasn't uh, uh, making me feel guilty, was telling me that I had a disease and what I needed to do to recover. Well, then this old priest brought me to my first AA meeting at a place called Succasana, New Jersey. You have to be sober to say that or it sounds like a bad word. There I am in the meeting, and there are the members of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I want to hide under the table. I hate myself. I'm there. I'm going to the meeting, and they're having an anniversary. They're all happy. They're telling their stories. They're talking. They're all, and I hate myself, and I want to hide. I'm leaving that meeting. I had my car parked at a diner where I met this Father Dave, and he took me to the meeting, and he conveniently lost me at the meeting. So I had to get a ride back to my car from one of the members of the group. And it was old Joey W. And I'm sitting in his car and he doesn't stop talking. He's talking about this program. And, talk, and I'm saying to myself, there's something else wrong with this guy than booze. <laughs> they got me interested. It was uh, iron workers and longshoremen, train uh, dispatchers. Uh, these are the people in that group at Sakasana uh, that began to teach me uh, about higher power, a loving and compassionate God, a program of recovery, 12 steps. And I have come to find the God of my understanding through their efforts, uh, through that encounter. Now, many of us who are professional people are plagued with a number of problems. One of them is critical thinking. You have been trained, so have I, in critical thinking. And uh, this is a real barrier uh, on the road to recovery because we're trained to make judgments and the easiest way to go around and, and develop resentments is having a critical mind and making judgments about everything. And uh, I mean, that's, a, that's an occupational hazard for many of us. Another thing that many of us have been trained to do is to pursue perfection uh, and to mistake excellence or good work uh, as the pursuit of perfection. And we think that we have to be perfect, that we have to be absolutely perfect, and if there's something wrong, there's something wrong with us. Well... I think when we begin to grapple with middle age, we realize we're never going to accomplish the things in our life that we thought we might accomplish. And that many of our families just have to let go. And that uh, recovery, ongoing recovery, seems to be a matter of grace. There's another crazy notion we have that we think we do it. Well, I want to remember that my sobriety is God's gift. And my effort and my achievement has nothing to do with it. God's gift. What I have to do is work at accepting God's gift, and that's participation and sharing in the program and working the steps and everything else, but it's God's gift. I didn't do it. Uh, as much as uh, uh, people sometimes tell us, here's a little jargon, that we have great ego strength, give me a break. Uh, I didn't do it. It's a gift. It's a precious gift. Uh, and it's not a gift that we should have alone, that, that I'm going to go to a self-help program. This is a mutual help program. 
are. And then I have to find a place to use the gift that I've been given in the community and in the Society of Alcoholics Anonymous, and this is where I come alive. Now, I got very active in AA. I was all over the place. I was that suckers on a group. We used to go speaking all over the state, 12-step, and people, we were always on the move, always doing stuff. Uh, great sponsorship. My rehab was the back seat of my sponsor's car. He and a friend of his used to, we used to go to meetings. All the meetings at that time were 9 o'clock. You didn't have to worry about when it was. It was 9 o'clock. You didn't have to worry about 7.30, 8 o'clock. And there were no non-smoking meetings. Back then, everybody smoked, whether you wanted to or not. Smoking and crying and the meeting, the 9 o'clock meeting, would get there early. would have a meeting down in the car. would get to the meeting early. would talk to the people there. The meeting would start at 9 o'clock. It didn't end at 10 o'clock. It ended at 10.30, sometimes quarter of 11, sometimes 11 o'clock. Then there was the meeting after the meeting. That went on to about 11.30. Then we drove back. There was the meeting in the car. That was about 12 o'clock. Then we sat in that car. I'm in the back seat. They're in the front seat. We're still smoking. And they're talking about the steps. And they're going on and on. And I'm looking at my watch. And I'm saying to myself, it's 2 o'clock in the morning. I have to get up in the morning. And they're talking about nobody ever died of lack of sleep. And I said... I'm going to be the first one. <laughs> the best we have, uh, well, it was a great experience in rehabilitation, listening to them, going around to meetings and, and keeping contact with them. And over the years, what happens in our fellowship is we develop friendship. And thank God for that. Uh, sponsors, sponsors. We, 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 we develop friendship, which is the basis of all relationships in life no matter what they are, real friendship, where we care enough about each other to love, to love each other, to tell each other the truth. That's what began to happen in my life. It was very good. I drifted away from Alcoholics Anonymous uh, meetings. Drifted away, like so many people do. Began to shy away. All of a sudden, life gets better. I'm doing all kinds of stuff. I even get myself elected as the abbot of the monastery and all this. All this these are benefits. They're not personal achievements. They're, they're graces and benefits of sobriety. But I began to drift away from meetings. Didn't drink, drifted away. What began to happen is we would meet some of the people from the old group and talk about the old days like a club. Well, Alcoholics Anonymous is not a club. And it's not Psychology Anonymous. It's not Marriage Counseling Anonymous. It's not Unemployment Anonymous. It's Alcoholics Anonymous. And we began to treat it like a club. Many fell away and got themselves in trouble. I was very, very fortunate. Very fortunate. We were able to reform a group a number of years ago. I even forget how many years ago it is now. But we formed a group uh, again. And, I, and for me, recovery is a group experience. I need the support and sharing of people uh, from all walks of life. I need people in this program who are just coming in. I need the old timers. I've seen Mrs. Delaney this afternoon. She comes to our meeting. And uh, we need each other. I need the, the new people to, to keep my memory green so I can remember and not resent that I can remember. And that means to put back together uh, my life and not just refeel and resent. I need people who have been through all kinds of experiences and have been old timers. I need their wisdom. And, and they have an uncanny gift of guidance. They just know what to do. And I need them around me. And that's why I need a fellowship of men and women from all walks of life who are willing to share their experience, strength, and hope with me going to wrap up. The only thing I want to say, uh, perhaps one word that you might reflect upon. What I've learned in AA is to listen. I believe in speakers' meetings. I think that's the uh, uh, a great way that I don't have to think about 
what I'm going to say, I listen. That's what I've learned. That's one of the great things to keep coming and learn to listen again and again and again. We need to learn to listen to each other. I imagine physicians need to learn to listen to their patients, that God may use them to help heal them. God bless you. Wish you all a happy 24.